Outlet Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Good afternoon and welcome along to The Profile with me, Justin Briley. I'm going to be here with not one, not two, not three, but four different people joining me on today's show. The Profile is the show every Saturday afternoon here on Premier Christian Radio, which brings you a range of conversations with Christians in all walks of faith and life. So we're doing this, as usual, in association with Premier Christianity magazine. And you can find within the latest edition of Premier Christianity magazine, the interview you'll be hearing today with Hugh Ross. He is the founder and president of Reasons to Believe. He's an astrophysicist and he's joining me at Unbelievable the Conference 2018 on Saturday the 19th of May, just two weeks away. So if you haven't yet booked and you'd like to hear some fascinating insights into the way we can put science and faith together or indeed have all kinds of questions and objections answered, that's the theme of this year's conference, Just Ask. Come along with your questions and get good answers from the team from Reasons to Believe and many other speakers who are going to be joining me at this year's conference saturday the 19th of may if you want ticket deals and everything else info topics and much more go to the website premier.org.uk slash just ask so we'll be hearing from hugh in just a moment's time and then straight after hugh in this section of the program we'll also hear from ken samples of reasons to believe he's a theologian on staff with them and later on in the program you'll also be hearing some conversations i've had with tim keller and Oz Guinness. So don't forget to ask for a free sample copy of the latest edition of Premier Christianity magazine at the website premierchristianity.com slash free sample and indeed to listen to and share the profile as a podcast from wherever you get your podcasts or at the website premierchristianradio.com slash the profile. So to begin our series of interviews on the profile this week let's start with Hugh Ross. Welcome along Hugh. Thank you. It's great to have you, and it's just a good chance to share a little bit of your background, your faith journey on today's show. So uh, take us back to the beginning, Hugh. You're a scientist now. Right. You're a Christian now. Right. But you weren't when you were growing up, were you? Oh, not at all. I was born, raised, and educated in Canada. My parents were moral, uh, but we only attended church a very few times. Um, uh, But I got into astronomy when I was seven, uh, trying to figure out why the stars are hot. And from the age of eight onwards, I knew astrophysics would be my future career. would study a particular discipline every year in some depth. Age 16, I looked at uh, cosmology, the origin structure of the universe. And that's when I realized the evidence was heavily favoring Big Bang cosmology. And with Big Bang cosmology, the universe has a beginning. Therefore, there must be a beginner. So from the age of 16 onwards, I did not doubt the existence of God. But I was skeptical this God that created this vast universe would communicate to us beings on a small speck we call planet Earth. But for the sake of intellectual honesty, I actually went through the holy books of the religions of the world and uh, recognized that of all the different holy books, there was only one that was accurately and consistently predicting future science and future history. And so at age 19, I signed my name in the back of a Gideon Bible, committing my life to Christ. And eight years later, I met Christians when I arrived on the Caltech campus. This story is just so interesting because nowadays most people get the impression that if you start to look at science, you're more likely to be drawn away from any idea that God exists. But for you, quite the opposite. When you started to look at the science, you came from a place of, I guess, agnosticism to actually believing just on the basis of the scientific evidence that there must have been a creator? Well, when you look at Big Bang and see, I was studying this uh, at the very time when scientists here in Britain were developing the first of the space-time theorems, which states that the entire universe is traceable back to an actual beginning of space and time with a causal agent beyond space and time that brings this universe into existence. As I looked at the Eastern religions, they talked about space and time being eternal, not created. And what I saw in Christianity was a story that was different and consistent with the latest discoveries in astrophysics. And so when you picked up the Bible and started looking through it for yourself, what what kind of was the process by which you started to, to think, well, does that fit with what I know of science? Well, what surprised me, it was the only holy book that actually spoke of an actual space-time beginning when the universe was created. 
is also the only holy book that talked about the universe continuously expanding. And I knew enough about the history of astronomy to realize that was not recorded anywhere else outside of the Bible until the 20th century. For over 2,000 years, the Bible stood alone in stating, we live in a continuously expanding universe, a universe with constant laws of physics, and where one of those laws is a pervasive law of decay, which means we must be living in a universe that progressively gets colder and colder as it gets older it's, and older. It's really interesting you say this, because most people, I guess, who pick up the Bible don't see those kinds of details in it. Obviously, with your scientist eye on, what, what led you to the conclusion that some of these discoveries of modern science are in some sense predicted within the pages of Scripture? Well, it's not that the Bible just says it once. I mean, there's actually 11 different passages which talk about God uh, stretching out the heavens. Mm. And it puts it in a variety of different Hebrew verb forms, which means the Bible literally, not figuratively, is speaking about God continuously expanding the universe from the cosmic creation event. You know, that's the heart of Big Bang cosmology. So the fact that the Bible predicted Big Bang cosmology in all of its fundamental details, thousands of years before any astronomer even dreamed of the concept, uh, was one piece of evidence that told me this book has predictive power. And I spent two years going through the Bible, trying to find some place where it got it wrong on predicting future scientific discoveries. It never did. It was always right. And it's notice that the same uh, predictive power with respect to human history, right. predicting future historical events. And I realized that was only possible if this book was inspired by the one that actually created the universe and knows the future. And so that was one of many pieces of evidence that persuaded it, me. It's extraordinary stuff. I mean, the first thing that leaps to my mind, though, is that most people, when they think of science in this country, do, do think that somehow it's linked inevitably to atheism. You know, our most famous export, unfortunately, on this front is Richard Dawkins. And he very much sort of tends to focus, whenever he does engage with Christians, on a sort of young earth creationist view of creation, which he quickly points out is totally at odds with science. They believe that the world is only some 6,000 years old and don't believe in Big Bang cosmology and, and all the rest of it. So um, has he got a point? I mean, a lot of people do read the Bible that way. Um, what's your response to that? Well, I never even knew of a young earth interpretation of the Bible until I arrived in California. I mean, I never dreamed, into, I mean, when I read through the Bible that anyone could possibly read it from a young earth perspective. But that was probably because, as a scientist, I was looking for consistency throughout the entire Bible. I understand how some people can take a young earth interpretation of a couple of isolated passages in the Bible, but when you read through all the biblical creation texts, it's self-contradictory from a young earth perspective. Uh, but if you take the idea that these days of creation are six consecutive long periods of time, which is one of the literal definitions for the Hebrew word yom, you're not only reading the entire Bible literally, you're reading it literally and consistently. And so you do believe then that the creation act, as it were, uh, took place over millennia in that right. sense. Uh, and, and so how do you go to the six-day creation that we see in Genesis, you know, Genesis chapter 1. What, what's happening there for you? What, what's, what is being expressed, if not well, sort of six literal 24-hour-day yeah, periods? I, I read the Genesis for the first time at age 17, and I noticed right away there's an evening and a morning for the first six days, but not the seventh day. That's the day when God rests from his work of creation activity. And when I read that, it answered for me a problem that had bothered me since age nine, the fossil record enigma, how we see all this evidence for speciation events before humanity and virtually none afterwards. And when I read Genesis, this is finally the answer. For six days God creates. On the seventh day he ceases from that work of creation. I also noticed that the text talked about the human male and the human female being created by God on day six. But in chapter 2, there's a considerable passage of time between God creating Adam and God creating Eve. Even makes the point that Adam was lonely before mm. Eve showed up. So I said the sixth day has got to be a significant period of time as well as the seventh. And I noticed too that all the events mentioned in the uh, six days were in the correct chronological sequence 
with respect to the record of nature. I see. So, so rather than seeing, seeing that this is somehow 24-hour blocks in which everything was created, the, this kind of refers to scientific sort of epochs, if you like, in the, in the, the created order. That, that and, and, and that's where you sort of, how you, how you interpret the Well, Genesis I mean, record. even in the English language, we talk about the day of the dinosaurs. Mm. So, I mean, our own word day can use for a long period of time. And when I looked into uh, Hebrew, I discovered that almost every Hebrew noun has multiple literal definitions. So you must look at the context to see which of the five definitions of earth are referred to, for example, in Genesis 1, or the three different definitions mm. of heaven. And likewise, the word for day in Hebrew is four different literal definitions, three of which show up in Genesis 1. Now, I think what helped me is right away when I looked at the Genesis 1, I saw that it followed the scientific method. And what really impressed me about the Bible when I compared it with the other holy books, it was the only one that commanded objective testing. Everything must be tested. Hold fast to that which is good, uh, that Paul says in Thessalonians. And actually, you see how the Bible not only tells you to put everything to test, shows you how to do it. So when I run into the Richard Dawkins of the world that say, are you aware that the scientific method comes from the pages of the Bible? There's no, <laughs> no accident that I the science... I can imagine how he responds to that, but... Uh, well, I mean, it's not an accident. No. The scientific revolution came out of the Reformation. Absolutely. So, so you, now, you now run Reasons to Believe, and that's been going for a, a couple of decades now, right. um, where you're, you're seeking to put science and faith together, show the harmony between the, science, the, the, nature, the, the record right. of nature and the record of Scripture. Um, where does Jesus fit into all this? The person of Jesus, obviously, is, is the central defining aspect of the Christian faith. Um, did, did Jesus sort of, as it were, look to the evidence of nature when he was presenting his followers and his, those around him with, with the vision of God that, that well, he presented. Well, let me put it this way. Uh, often people think of apologetics as arguing for the existence of God. I look at the record of nature as being much more potent than that. It's not only able to demonstrate that there's a God behind the universe, it's able to show you which kind of God is behind the universe. And that's where we pull Jesus Christ in. We say this isn't just a God that transcends space and time. This is a God that's personal. This is a God that's many, many orders of magnitude, more intelligent, more knowledgeable, more creative, more powerful, and particularly loving. You look at Psalm 104, it makes the point that God packed the earth with as much life as possible, as diverse as possible, for as long as possible, in order that we humans could be enriched with a huge treasure chest of biodeposits. That screams love Mm. and providence. And this is the God of the Bible, not the God of Islam, not the God of Hinduism or, or Buddhism. So our whole point of reasons to believe is we can not only demonstrate the existence of God, we can identify the identity of the cosmic creator. And it is the person of Jesus Christ. And then we ask the question, why these physics? Mm. I mean, that's, that's something that grabbed me when I was a youth. Why gravity? Why electromagnetism? Why the strong and weak nuclear force? Why the four large space dimensions? And our research shows that all of this is necessary for the creator of the universe to eliminate evil and suffering quickly and efficiently and deliver us from this creation to a brand new creation. And so that, again, kind of just ties Mm. right into the gospel Mm. and also realizing the physics of this universe provides the best possible theater for the creator of the universe to enter our realm, demonstrate an example of humility for all of us, but also take upon himself uh, the redemptive price for the sins of every human being. The physics is perfect uh, for the creator of the universe to do that. It's mind-boggling stuff, but I'm so glad we have you, Hugh, to, to, to help us to understand and to put these things together. It's been great talking to you, Hugh. And um, if you would like to find out more about the Ministry of Reasons to Believe, I do encourage you both to visit Hugh's website, the, the Ministry of Reasons to Believe. Uh, for the moment, thank you very much, Hugh, for joining me today. My pleasure. You're listening to The Profile with me, Justin Briley. Don't forget, you can download The Profile as a podcast anywhere in the world. Do go to our website for more information, premierchristianradio.com slash 
the profile. That was Hugh Ross talking to me about his life and faith. And remember, you can hear Hugh Ross in person and ask questions yourself at this year's Unbelievable Conference on Saturday, the 19th of May. Just go to our website for more details, premier.org.uk slash just ask. Well, Hugh is the founder of Reasons to Believe, and uh, one of the key scholars on the team is Ken Samples. He's also joining us at this year's Unbelievable Conference. He's a theologian, and I recently had a conversation with him about how he became a Christian, his life, faith, and ministry. Thank you very much, Ken, for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure, Justin. Glad to be with you. Well, we're finding out today why you believe, and so it'd be good to take us back to the start of your faith journey. Um, Did you grow up in a Christian household? When did you first, as it were, get to grips with God? Well, I was raised in what I would call kind of a nominal Catholic family. We went to church uh, on, you know, the most important holy days, so to speak. But I was uh, kind of a restless youth. I wasn't really sure that I understood Catholicism or Christianity for that matter. And it wasn't until I was in college that my older sister gave me a copy of uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And that book struck me as, wow, I I didn't know Christians could be as thoughtful and reflective. And uh, that was the book that kind of led to me giving serious consideration to Christianity and then ultimately my interest in apologetics. So C.S. Lewis obviously has had a fairly foundational aspect in that. Did you go on to read other works of his? I did. I I began really uh, reading everything that I could get my hands on. And uh, I, through Lewis, became exposed to other Christian theologians and and apologists. And I began realizing that the things I was reading in Lewis I could use at the university. I was talking with both my professors and students about philosophical and theological issues. So that was a a real shot in the arm, Mm. I think, to my spiritual life. I guess reading those materials helped to give you a sort of rational basis for the faith. What did it mean on a personal level, though? What what did it mean for your life when you started to investigate these things? And and what did it look like when you put your trust in Christ? Well, I, I think that what I appreciated about Lewis was not only that he was presenting arguments for the faith, something I had not heard up until that time, but he was also teaching me about historic Christianity. He was talking about a life of faith, uh, a life of hope, love, and and trust. And certainly when I began uh, taking the Bible seriously, it had a big change on my moral life, on my view of the way I should be living day to day. Uh, as well as my vocational ideas. Up until that time, I wasn't quite sure. It was really uh, a beginning of wanting to be interested in in ministry, yeah. uh, apologetics, and, and things of that nature. So it did have a, a, a big impact. I remember one of my friends who I knew since uh, elementary school said that my life was uh, black and white. It was a right. huge change. So uh, it certainly took away the restlessness that was in my life. That's interesting. As you journeyed on uh, and became obviously uh, someone who was reading voraciously, who was thinking through these issues, um, did you ever have any doubts creeping? Did you have moments where you had to deal with issues, probably when you were presented with them for the first time? Uh, I do a show where I, I kind of launched myself in the deep end and and opened myself up to problems with the Christian faith that I never knew even existed before I started. And and that's kind of what an apologist does in a sense. They're there at the front line dealing with some of the most serious objections to Christianity. So so how did you deal with some of the doubts that came along? Well, they did come. And uh, at first I thought maybe there was something wrong with me, that uh, why, why would I have doubts about my faith? I came, though, to realize that I think any thoughtful, reasonable person, anybody who thinks hard about an issue is going to have doubts. And I think one thing that helped me through that process was realizing sometimes your doubts are intellectual. You know, maybe I don't know enough about the issue. I, I really have not understood it properly. I think, however, there are also doubts that are of an emotional nature. Uh, I think sometimes we have difficulty trusting people in our life. And so I began to realize that doubts may arise in, in various ways. Uh, something that has been enormously helpful to me, though, during those difficult times is the reading of Scripture. 
Paul says that faith comes by hearing, hearing the message about Christ, Romans 10, 17. And I've always found that, that Scripture speaks to me both in my mind and at the core of my being. Uh, but I think as human beings, as thoughtful people, we have to live with a certain mm-hmm. level of uh, uncertainty. And uh, I came to realize that that's not just something that I struggle with, but that other people do as well. Sure. Now, in the journey, you've been helping others to work through their sort of intellectual side of their faith. Um, When it comes to interacting with others, uh, how often do you find people are are needing answers to these sorts of intellectual issues to do with Christianity? I think lots of people tend to kind of, a lot of people, in my experience, don't tend to want to necessarily engage with that, don't tend to sort of, that doesn't seem to be something that's particularly important to them. But when you do engage with people on that, who are the kind of people who do need that sort of a level of engagement with the Christian faith? Well, what I realized uh, teaching philosophy at a, at a public college, I, I realized that, uh, you know, it, I was trying to encourage students to ask the big questions of life. Why am I here? Is mm. there a God? What's wh- what's going to happen to me when I when I die? And Justin, what I realized is over a five-year period that students would inevitably discover that I was a Christian or that I was an author or they might hear me on a radio program and they'd immediately begin asking me particular questions. And my book, Without a Doubt, the subtitle is Answering the 20 Toughest Faith Questions. That book really came about by over a five-year period being asked almost semester by semester the same kinds of questions. You know, Mm. how can I believe in a God I can't see? Mm. Or how can God be one in three? Or the bigger question, uh, the problem of pain and suffering. Yeah. And so uh, I think question and answer is a, is a powerful uh, means of approaching these types of issues. But I have discovered that a lot of people don't necessarily want to think about the big questions of life. They're, they're difficult mm. uh, and they, they leave you with a, a lack of certainty at times. But I think for those who are interested in them, Christian apologetics provides a very strong basis for getting solid answers. This is kind of something that comes up quite often for me, but it is the question of, well, once you've presented the arguments to someone who's, who's, who's interested, say, at what point do you kind of have to leave it in their hands and say, well, well now you have to decide what to do with this? I mean, I guess there are always going to be unanswered questions, yeah. more things we could think of that, that are, are difficult or questionable. At what point can you say, no, I've got enough in my hands now and I, I have enough to be able to take a step of faith? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think that I, I think that's right. I, I think apologetics, Justin, is, is often taking away people's misperceptions. I mean, many of the skeptics that I talk with, they don't think someone like me cares about reason and logic. And, and, and I try to communicate to them that... Uh, that, that faith involves knowledge and that it's compatible uh, with reason. But I, I think as an apologist too, sometimes you can take uh, a person from one base to the next, but you have to trust that they'll do continual thinking and reasoning and the Holy Spirit mm. may be involved in taking them to the next place in their life. And so I try to have uh, a reasonable expectation of what my arguments might mean and how far it may take them down yeah. the road of life. I was reading Alistair McGrath recently on C.S. Lewis. Um, there's a big year coming up next year, the 50th anniversary of yes. his passing away. Um, but uh, in this article, he was saying what, what Lewis did brilliantly was not just present arguments for the existence of God, but he made people want Christianity mm-hmm. to be true. And, and I think there's something true about that, that apologetics at its best is not just defending truths yeah. about Christianity, but it's actually about making people thirsty for it as well. I, I think that's very well put. I mean, I, I think the idea of, of knowing that there is purpose in life. Um, as, an, as a non-Christian, I, I was troubled by what does my life mean? And uh, what is, is there rhyme and reason uh, to life? And, and Lewis writes uh, very passionately about the, the good things of, of a Christian life. Mm-hmm. And I will often share with the skeptic, I mean, you're going to die. It 
it may be soon. You die alone. You're dead forever. I mean, that seems like a hopeless worldview. What is the Christian alternative to that? And what is, what is uh, again, the idea of being no longer restless but, but finding meaning and purpose? So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's, that's a very good way of describing apologetics. And when you are interacting with skeptics, what are the sort of lessons you've learned about the best way to do dialogue? We live in a world where the internet, unfortunately, and the anonymity that it provides Mm -hmm. often means that people kind of end up in a slanging match, really, uh, hurling insults of one kind or another, perhaps with a a vaguely intellectual gloss on them. Um, Very different, I find, to actually interacting with someone face-to-face. Have you got sort of any advice for those who are actually talking to people in their context? You know, apologetics is not an easy thing. It, it, it is, it's a combat sport at times, and, it, and it's not an easy thing. I, I think two things I've learned. I, I really try to convey to people that, that, I, that I care very deeply about the life of the mind, about reason and logic and rationality, that I'm, that I'm a student of the mind. But the other one is, I think, uh, Justin, often it's your demeanor and your attitude that carry as much weight, sometimes even more, than, than your arguments. And so when Peter says, be ready to give to every man an answer, he also talks about doing it with gentleness and respect. And so I try to build some kind of connection. I try to be perceived as a, as a credible person, uh, not only logically credible, but also ethically credible and uh, using, again, that sense of uh, uh, what, what you referred to with Lewis, that this is something that I see as very valuable, and I hope they will as well. Thank you very much, Ken, for joining me. My privilege. That was Ken Samples talking to me about his faith, life and ministry with Reasons to Believe. And along with Hugh Ross and Fuzrana of Reasons to Believe, they'll be with me at Unbelievable the Conference 2018 happening on Saturday the 19th of May. If you've not yet booked in, kind of encourage you to go and look at all the range of topics, questions, guests and brilliant material that will be available at this year's conference happening in central London on Saturday the 19th of May. The website is premier.org.uk slash just ask. Well, coming up in the second half of today's programme, we're going to be hearing from Tim Keller and Oz Guinness, two significant church leaders and authors that you'll want to hear our conversation with. Coming up next on The Profile. Everyone's favourite satirist Adrian Plass pens a new sacred diary for the latest edition of Premier Christianity magazine with his unique take on the phenomenon of the Christian festival. Plus, we ask, how should believers respond to identity politics? Is smoking the cardinal sin it's often made out to be? Hugh Ross tells how astrophysics brought him face-to-face with the creator. And we bring you a special report on the megachurch movement in the USA, going behind the scenes of six of America's biggest churches. All that plus much more. Ask for your free edition at premierchristianity.com slash freesample. Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to the second part of this week's edition of The Profile. I'm Justin Briley, bringing you a range of interviews this week with all kinds of Christians, uh, church leaders, authors, scientists, theologians. And uh, in this section of the programme, we're going to be hearing from church leader Tim Keller and uh, Christian thinker and author Oz Guinness. The profile is brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. If you'd like a free sample copy, of the latest edition of the mag, do go and ask for one at the website premierchristianity.com slash free sample. I used to be able to say I'm the editor of the magazine, no longer so, as I've uh, moved on and handed over that role uh, to Sam Hales as I focus exclusively really these days on the unbelievable radio show podcast and well brand really that's emerging. But uh, Sam doing a wonderful job heading up the magazine. Uh, Do make sure to ask for a free sample copy. And of course, uh, Sam is a regular contributor here on the profile as well. If you want to hear the profile as a podcast, uh, do go and look for it wherever you get your podcast from or find it on our website, premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile. 
Well, for 25 years, Tim Keller was the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, very often referred to as the pastor to the skeptics of a skeptical city. Well, in the last couple of years, he's transitioned out of uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church into a wider ministry, equipping church leaders with their city to city program. But this particular interview was recorded while he was still uh, ministering at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. So this is my interview from the archive with Tim Keller. Tim, thank you for joining me today. It's um, great to have you over here because you're very well known in the States. You're, I think your profile is rising in the UK. Um, people, I, I've spoken to people who call you not Tim Keller, but Tim Clever, because uh, you're seen as a bit of a brain box when it comes to uh, things about, you know, God and the existence of God and, and putting the, the arguments forward. Um, is, is this a sort of special ministry, you'd say, you've developed in, in recent years? Is this what you're being approached for? Uh I actually think because I'm I'm an American pastor in a place like Manhattan, where I've been for 21 years, and because Manhattan is not like the rest of America, it's much more like Europe. Therefore, I think folks have, here have found that if they bring me over, that I, um, I for various reasons, I'm uh, I connect pretty well with the audience here, maybe a little better than other Americans, and I don't think it's necessarily because. I think it's because of who I've learned to speak to in Manhattan. Also, the clever, that's an interesting, uh, I hadn't heard that before. But uh, New Yorkers are, uh, uh, people who who live and work in Manhattan usually are pretty smart people. They've gone to really good schools. They've worked very hard to get where they are. They tend to be experts. And I have to respond to that. I, I, I have to give arguments that work at a probably a higher level. And it might bore people in other parts of the country, but uh, in New York, they want they want good arguments, and, and they're they're willing to sit, and they have more a more a longer attention span for arguments because of the nature of the culture. So I don't think I'm trying to be in, more intellectual. I'm I'm just trying to reach the people who I I live with, and that seems to also resonate with a lot of folks, especially in London. Take us back, Tim, to when you were growing up. Were you wrestling with the kinds of questions that you've addressed in your books as, as you were yes. becoming a Christian? Yes. I think I had, uh, um, I've had two, two places where I wrestled with these kinds of questions. The first was in college. I think like an awful lot of folks, I was raised in a traditional Lutheran, um, uh, a Lutheran church, more traditional. I went off to college and I doubted everything, and I had to work through all the same questions that I what were the big yeah. ones for you? Uh, actually, because of my age here, I, I came up in uh, during the civil rights movement. And so I found that uh, a lot of Christians thought that Martin Luther King Jr. and folks like that were communists. A lot of Americans saw uh, the, uh, the proponents of civil rights as being communists and socialists. Uh, and most of, this, most of my secular friends thought it was a wonderful movement, and so did I. So my big struggle was Christians didn't seem to be caring about justice, and the non-Christians did. And yet Christians had a lot of reason to believe in justice. That was one of my struggles. And I also struggled with things like science and history and can you trust the Bible, etc. So what, what process did it take for you to come to a satisfactory um, place in your head where you could progress and say, well, I mean, was that the kind? Were those questions stopping you having a relationship with Christ, or were they? Was it just that you had a relationship, but you also had doubts, and you had to kind of deal with those? I would say that though I had a, that I had uh, an before college, I I think I believed Christian doctrine. I didn't have a personal relationship. There was not a true encounter. Then the uh, intellectual doubts, in a sense, pushed me through to get that encounter. So my doubts were the best thing that ever happened to me in hindsight. I think if I'd never gone through the doubting of college, I think I would have probably never really met Christ. That's interesting. I mean, a lot of people see doubt as the enemy of faith. I mean, do you, do you see it that way? No. Uh, I think doubt is, uh, uh, as long as you deal with it honestly, and you can, uh, it can actually propel you to toward God in a new way. There's dishonest doubt. I mean, Aldous Huxley has this place in one of his books where he admits that the reason why he didn't want to believe in God was because he wanted to have sex. And, you know, if he believed in God, he wasn't sure he could do that. He admitted that as an undergraduate student, he said, I really didn't have honest motives for my doubts. 
I, I wanted my doubts to help me say, who knows, so I can live there any way I want. So there are doubts that can d- destroy your uh, mm. relationship with God, and there's doubts that can propel you into one. What are the main questions that you're coming across in your ministry to skeptics and uh, unbelievers? Well, they change a bit. For example, uh, when I was 20 or 30 years ago, the biggest question, one of the biggest questions was, how can uh, I as a modern person believe in miracles? I can't believe in the resurrection. I can't believe in these things because miracles don't happen. What's intriguing is younger people don't go there anymore. They're much more willing to say, it's a mysterious, weird universe out there. Who knows? So miracles isn't their problem. Um, more of the questions that come up is, if I'm a Christian, how do I live in a pluralistic world? Uh, will I be intolerant of other religions? Will I be intolerant of people uh, uh, who live different lives, lifestyles and lives? So there's more of a question of whether it goes back to the in the Roman days um, in the early church, people said, can Christians be good citizens? And increasingly, I'm getting that question from people. If I was a Christian, can I be a good citizen in this pluralistic society or will I be almost a terrorist? Because I'll, I'll just feel like everybody else is an infidel and I have to go after them. It's an interesting area because obviously you – they're kind of in the heart of Manhattan. It's a very cosmopolitan culture. Mm-hmm. Um, yet you're running this successful church. Uh, you've got lots of people coming along. Um, I guess a lot of people probably said it couldn't be done. Yes, Bible Belt, fine. You can buy, build a big church down in the Bible Belt. But New Yorkers, they're savvy. They're not going to buy mm-hmm. some kind of slick marketing campaign from a mega church. What's What's been the secret of the success of Redeemer in terms of the way it has managed to reach these people? Yes, I did. I did hear that. the 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 simple fact is that every every religion, except Christianity, tends to be um, immobile. Now, what I mean by that is, um, uh, Hinduism began in India, and that's still where most Hindus live. Uh, Buddhism began in, you know, really India migrated. Probably the center is more of Japan, but it 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 was it's most Buddhist or Asian. Most Muslims still live in the Middle East, by and large. But Christianity migrates. In other words, it's it's uh, started in the Mediterranean. It's moved to being a European. It moved to being a North American. Now it's it's growing like so rapidly in Asia and Latin America. Uh, Christianity does not only fit one class. I mean, it in its proper form, it has to be incarnated. It has to be communicated. It has to be connected to the baseline cultural narratives and the hopes and aspirations of any particular culture, and then it can just, it'll win a lot of people. And it was really a matter simply of finding a form that was more urbane, uh, a form of Christianity that uh, connected to the, the concerns and the, of, the, of the people in the city, and also answered questions of people in the city. So there's a, more, there's a rural form of Christianity, there's an urban form of Christianity, there's a white, there's a black, there's these various... Uh, forms they're all the same still apostles creed still believe the same things but the uh, the way it's couched and the way it's communicated has to be different for every culture and once you find that way it grows and we were just looking for that way in new york and we uh to some degree have found it counterfeit gods is the name of your latest book um what are the gods that are being counterfeited in our society do you think uh, well, the the idea of the of counterfeit gods is that every culture has its idols, and that means taking good things, making them ultimate things. Good example of this would be in traditional cultures. There's a tendency to make the family an idol. So that's the whole idea behind honor killings. An honor killing is um, uh, the family's honor is all important. Uh, it's so absolute that we'll kill somebody in the family who's not upholding it. Now, we in the West can hardly understand that. We're just shocked at honor killings, but that's because we make the individual an idol. And individual fulfillment is the most important thing. And my individual happiness is more important than keeping my promises or my submission to God. So every culture has its own idols. Uh, uh, Also, even cities uh, in America, by the way, the idea is in Boston, they ask, what does he know? In New York, they ask, how much does he make? And in Philadelphia, they ask, who's his family? And that's a way of getting at the fact that even cities have their own idols. 
And uh, and yet, of course, uh, Christianity says that whether you're from Philadelphia or from Boston or whether you're from a traditional culture or an individualistic culture, you have to put God first. And that changes the way in which you live in your culture. It's been fascinating talking to you, Tim. Thank you very much. Uh, take our best back to New York. And uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your stay over here in the UK. Thank you so much, Justin. That was Tim Keller speaking to me in that archive interview about his life, faith and ministry at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Our next guest on today's edition of The Profile is Oz Guinness. He's a Christian speaker, author and public intellectual. His books include Fool's Talk, Recovering the Art of Christian Persuasion, Unspeakable, Facing Up to the Challenge of Evil and Renaissance, The Power of the Gospel, However Hard the Times. Again, from our archive, Oz Guinness speaking to me about his life, faith and ministry. Oz, thank you very much for joining me. Great pleasure, Justin, to be back with you. It's great to have you here. Now, this is a little segment where we ask a little bit about your faith journey, how things started off for you. So tell us about growing up. Were you born into a Christian family? I was. My parents were medical missionaries in China. So I grew up in the very turbulent times at the end of World War II, and I lived to see the climax of the Chinese Revolution and the beginning of the Reign of Terror. Goodness me. So quite uh, heady sights for young eyes, I'm sure. Well, it certainly gave me a deep sense of realism about the world. Tell me then what happened in your own faith journey. Did you essentially inherit the faith of your parents? No. Obviously, I have a number of generations of faith behind me, and that's a story in itself. I'm descended from the youngest son of Arthur Guinness the Brewer, who was a strong evangelical believer, who came to faith through John Wesley and his preaching in Ireland and gave our business a tremendous sense of generosity, social responsibility, health care, and all sorts of things for the workers and homes for the poor and so on. So that heritage is behind me. But when I was nine, my parents and I were under house arrest in China, and they were able to send me to England and school. So I had all my teenage years actually without my parents. So Obviously, their love and their faith and their prayers were behind me, but they had no influence in my life at all uh, in a daily practical sense growing up. And I came to faith at the end of my school years, really through one Christian friend and through reading and an odyssey of books. And on the one hand, people like Nietzsche and Sartre and Camus and people who are atheists and hated God. And then, on the other hand, people like Dostoevsky, Pascal, G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis. And eventually, I became convinced for myself that the Christian faith was true. You obviously took that into a very academic environment at university and then in Oxford. Um, So what kind of challenges have you experienced along the way to your Christian faith? Well, I've followed Jesus now for 50 years. And I love the little statement from George Whitfield: I'm never better than when I'm on the full stretch for God. And so I love the idea of the adventure of faith and stretching yourself by seeing it where it can apply. So, you know, my doctorate at Oxford in the, quote, the sociology of knowledge, that's a mind-spinning relativistic area. And it was a challenge to think it through. But at the end of it, my faith was deeper. Uh, uh, Earlier, I had studied for a number of months under a guru Mm. in Rishikesh, who was a philosopher and obviously deeply involved in Hindu uh, religion and philosophy. I found that at first incredibly challenging. But at a moment when I grasped the difference between the Christian faith and Hinduism, my faith just deepened immeasurably. And those two sort of experiences have been true of all of my life. Every time I've stretched my faith, taking on the challenges, I've ended the challenge by realizing it is more profound as true. It is more profound as adequate. And so that's been my story. Many people, when they encounter other worldviews, be they atheistic or other religions, tend to shrink back from claiming any special place for Christianity. They maybe reduce Jesus to the moral teacher Mm -hmm. or whoever. Why didn't that happen in your case? Why for you? Well, that's a disastrous view of faith. I mean, the ultimate reason to believe is that we're convinced it's true. And if that's so, then all truth is God's truth. And then importantly, we fear no questions. That doesn't mean we have all the answers. 
but it means that we're prepared to tackle the questions and take on the big issues. And as I said, I'm a great believer that contrast is the mother of clarity. And a lot of people have this sloppy idea. They're all the same. Not at all. If you look at the difference between the Christian faith and atheism or Hinduism or Buddhism or whatever it is, you come back every time with the wonder and the gratitude of knowing the difference that knowing God through Jesus really makes. And is that the, this key difference for you? I, I remember C.S. Lewis, uh, there's a story, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, of him mm. walking into some kind of conference on different religions and they asked him, well, what do you think is the key thing that separates Christianity from other religions? And he said, oh, that's easy, grace. Um, mm. I don't know whether that's what, where you would put the, the key differential. What, what, what would be your take on well, that? Well, it depends. I think there are many, many differences. For example... At our conference in Oxford in a couple of weeks at the Oxford Center for Apologetics, the whole stress is human dignity, people made in the image of God. And in today's world, that's one of the huge differences. Because for a long time, humanism was a parasite on the Christian faith. God was no longer there, but humans still had dignity. Well, more and more now, whether it's science or philosophy, that's disappearing. Are we just an animal? Are we just the product of our genes, etc., etc.? The alternatives to the Christian faith when it comes, say, to human dignity are very strong. So you could take a notion like grace, or you could take a notion like human dignity, or freedom, or truth, many, many other differences. But always you come back, the differences make a difference, and thank God for them. Mm. So this work, uh, this in engagement with other points of view, worldviews, has all fed in, I suppose, to what your current project is. Recently, you've been working on what's been called the Global Charter of Conscience. Tell us a little bit about the background to that, what it's mm -hmm. all about. Well, it's no secret that our world doesn't know how to handle differences, especially when they're religious. Many countries like China, you have government repression. Other countries like Nigeria, you have savage sectarian violence, say Boko Haram slaughtering Christians. But here in the West, we have endless violations and the mounting culture wars over what religion is in the public life. And really, there's a dueling set of visions. On the one hand, those who want to impose their faith on everyone else. I call them the sacred public square advocates. And on the other hand, those who'd like to keep religion out everywhere, the so-called naked square ad uh, advocates. And what we've done not only me, but a coalition of people, including religious believers, Christians, Jews, and others, and secularists. This is a vision of public life which is open and free for people of all faiths, or you have to say today, no faith, although that is a faith too. In other words, everyone's free to enter and engage public life on the basis of their faith. That's freedom of conscience, but with an understanding of what is just and free for other people too. And this is the notion of a civil public square. And it's an innovative, constructive, new way of going forward. And I hope England, which is now in the toils of many of these things, I hope England will not go the way, or Britain at large, will not go the way that the Americans have gone for 50 years. They had a great system, but they've had 50 years of culture warring over religion and public life, and the difference is getting deeper and more polarized and more bitter. I mean, America has always had a separation, obviously, of church and state. What, what happened in the last 50 years? Though, well, to... for 200 odd years, they did it magnificently. And then when these issues became a matter of culture wars, and you had the Christian right or the religious right against the secularist left, you had the sacred public square against the naked public square, and it's got more and more bitter. Now, on the Christian side, obviously I'm a Christian, millions of people of your generation are dropping out of faith altogether because of the ugliness of the Christian extremism in public life. Now, I think the secularist extreme is just as bad. So our vision is an alternative to both of them. And in a way, we're saying a plague on both your houses. This is in nobody's advantage. Mm. We're in the interests of the common good. I suppose many people would say in response here in Britain, well, we are a Christian country, or at least we were up until recently. We were based, you know, uh, within a Christian framework. So we sort of have this history and we shouldn't just let it go in that sense. Not. And so uh, many people feel like there is a battle. There is a culture war here. 
where there is a group of people on one side who want to rob us of a Christian heritage. If we're talking Christianly, of course there's a war, but the Bible talks about the war in the supernatural realm, and that is very profound, what Nietzsche called a war of spirits. But when the scriptures talk about other people, we're contending for the truth, and it's much more in legal terms than in battle terms. And, of course, we're told to fight for the good of the cities in which we live, Jeremiah, and so on. So Christians should pray for the peace of all people. And we've got to really follow the scriptures in doing this in a Christ-like way. So the American Christian right demonized their opponents. Jesus called us to love our enemies. And, and this is the problem, I think, that does happen. There is always a danger, isn't there, of Christians eventually just being known for what they're against rather than what exactly. they're for. And then there's a backlash against them. Absolutely. So the Global Charter of Conscience is aimed at, um, I suppose, presenting this new way of thinking about the public square. Who are you hoping to reach to influence with this particular Well, at this stage, there's a small coalition of people who really understand the issues and a much wider group of scholars who are experts in religion and law and understand this. Now, there's the beginning of a grassroots movement, but we know well you can never win by a grassroots movement alone. The missing thing, and on many of this issue, this is true, is a political national leader of stature with moral courage and the ability to articulate vision. In America, and sadly also here, many of the political leaders, leaders just follow you know, the political trends and they just go with the culture-warring style, and that is a disaster. We need someone, say in England, on the level of a Wilberforce, in America on the stature of a, an Abraham Lincoln prepared to stand above the fray and to articulate something in the national interest for the common good of all citizens, whether they're religious or even anti-religious, whether they're Christian, Jewish, Muslim, or whatever. And that's what this vision is about. Well, I wish you all the very best with it, and uh, we'll certainly be supporting you as you go forward. Oz, thank you for joining me today. Always a pleasure, Justin. You've been listening to The Profile with me, Justin Briley. That was Oz Guinness talking to me about his life, faith and ministry. Uh, Topping off four different guests talking along those lines on today's edition of the show. Hope you've enjoyed it and make sure to tell your friends about The Profile. Available as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts from or at the website premierchristianradio.com forward slash The Profile. And don't forget that we publish monthly interviews with Christian leaders in all walks of life in Premier Christianity magazine. Do ask for a free sample copy of the latest edition at premierchristianity.com slash free sample. For now, thanks very much for joining me on this week's edition of The Profile. Coming up next, Premier Playback.